On this podcast episode, Dave Wallace, Adrian Ware, and Lance Peltz discuss the state of finance and investment 2023, touching on everything from the forces of inflation to the future of AI. It's right here on Baseline. From the studios of NMD Plus comes Baseline. Baseline, brought to you by Cavendish Ware, a UK-based boutique wealth management firm that provides truly bespoke advice. Cavendish Ware, wealth for life. And now is your host, Dave Wallace. Welcome to today's podcast. And today we're joined by Lance and Adrian. Welcome, chaps. How are you both doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. All good. Enjoying actually um, sitting here on a sunny day, which is a bit of a novelty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible how a bit of sunshine can make a real difference in terms of the way we all think about the world. So I just wanted to start with uh, thoughts on Cavendish Ware's year so far. I mean, we are living in very interesting times, I think, as you keep saying, Adrian. But, you know, I was kind of keen to just get your views on how things are going so far for Cavendish Ware. Yeah, I mean, from our point of view, it continues to be very busy internally. We're just getting towards the end of this massive programme of change, which I think we've talked about before, which has involved a lot of things that clients will have seen, but an awful lot of things the clients won't have seen. So we've most recently changed our whole back office operating system, which is probably the most terrifying thing we've done of everything, because it's all of our data and everything else. But it was something we've been wanting to do for a while and to actually go on to a system that is far more modern, far more forward thinking and will give us so much more capabilities to do things, you know, better and and quicker and more efficiently and provide, I think, eventually a far more streamlined approach to things. So that's really quite exciting. We took six months of a project to actually get us ready to implement. It's now implemented. We've been running on it for the last couple of months, but it's now iterative. You know, we've got the core of it, but it's then starting to build out all of the potential things that it can do. And that will take a long, long time. I mean, but it's exciting, actually. It's really exciting. I mean, I have to say, in terms of a transformation program, that's not a bad timescale at all. I mean, these things are huge, but I guess the benefits going forward are that you'll be able to focus on clients a lot more, have more information at your fingertips to ensure the best possible outcomes for clients. So that's been really good. And we've actually had a period where last year we took on a lot of new members of staff. We've taken on one new person so far this year. So it feels a lot calmer from that point of view. And that's been very good. So very stable team, which is lovely. And spending quite a lot of time also just concentrating a little bit on culture and values within the firm and looking at, you know, making sure that we all understand what those culture and values actually are and define them. And that's been a nice process as well. Actually got a lot of people involved within the business and talking I mean, it sounds like it's working. Just recently won from Professional Advisor Best Employer of the Year Award. I wasn't going to mention that, Dave. <laughs> yes, absolutely <laughs> delighted with that. I think we'd be very lucky. We've won quite a lot of awards over the years. But this one for me is quite personal. and Probably one of the proudest ones we've got because this is one where it was completely external. There is a very, very detailed survey that goes out to all members of staff. It's all anonymous. It's all centrally run, nothing to do with us. 
and it asked some very searching questions. We actually did it because we wanted the feedback. We wanted to try and get an understanding of what staff were thinking and areas they felt we could improve on and all that sort of stuff. And we actually didn't realise that there was an award at the end of all this. And that sounds a bit stupid that we really should have done, but we didn't. And lo and behold, we actually found we won. <laughs> so we are best employer in our sector. And that's a reflection of what our staff are saying about us. So we're really, really proud of that. Really proud of that. It's a tremendous Tremendous accolade, I think it's something to really celebrate because if your staff are happy and feel motivated, it can only be a good thing for your clients. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's an old adage in most industries says, you know, clients come first. Dave, as a client, you may not want to hear this, but in my view, that's not true. (laughs) Staff come first, because if you look after your staff, well, they are the people that will be looking after the clients. So I nicked that from Richard Branson, but I think it's a very, very accurate way of viewing things. I've tried over the course of my career to live by the adage of happy staff, happy client. Absolutely. I think it's brilliant, to be honest with you. And yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough actually to see some of the feedback from some of the staff. And it's, you know, really, really lovely to hear Mm. just how valued people feel in the business. Congratulations to you and the team. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's all been going on. I mean, obviously, with a backdrop of just very strange times you know as you say we do live in interesting times the old chinese proverb of course meant we always live in interesting times but you know there's always stuff going on isn't there always but how it impacts our thinking and our approach on what's going on it all matters i think it'd be great to kind of switch gears a bit and talk about what's been going on lance last time we talked we were in the middle of another storm and it feels like things have quietened down a bit but i mean there's a lot of things lurking in the background Reflecting on some of the key things this year, we've had a banking crisis, or have we? You know, I'm not quite sure. What do you think is going on behind the scenes with SVB and was it First Citizens in the US and obviously Credit Suisse? The ramifications of that were felt around, but things seem to have stabilised out around the banks. Is that the case or are you still pondering what's going to happen there? Yes, I think one thing to start off with is that we shouldn't get too tied up with the kind of broken Brexit Britain. And I don't want to stray into politics, but there's a pervading narrative that Britain is broken. Actually, a lot of countries are facing very similar problems, maybe of different scales and magnitude. And actually, I'm not saying it's good. I mean, we're definitely not in, it's all great, growth is great, etc. But it's actually turning out to be not as bad as expected. That's the general backdrop across the developed world. This all comes down to the sharp rise in inflation. Right. Inflation has remained resolutely, stubbornly high. Yes, it's rolling over, pick your country, pick your measure of inflation. But in every country, it's remaining stubbornly high. This is no longer about energy prices or supply chain goods. It's about the imbalance of labour. We are seeing a shrinking workforce, which is a result of demographics, COVID, etc. I mean, factors we've spoken about, which mean that inflation has remained stubborn on the downside now. And interest rates have gone up a lot. And I'll touch upon that in a moment. But one of the ramifications has been the impact on banks, most notably the US regional banks. And it's quite important to caveat that. So 
a lot of banks are now going to struggle because of the structure of bond markets and interest rates out into the future. But European banks, we believe, I have to caveat that because all European banks have been subject to strict and quite rigorous scrutiny and stress testing, which came into force post the global financial crisis. In the US, this was only focused on the very large banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase, etc., the names we know. Whereas the US has got a huge proliferation of regional banks. Some of them turn out to be very large and some of them turn out not to have been run that well. And the rise in interest rates has really exposed that. We find it encouraging that the regulatory bodies in the US, the US Federal Reserve and the US Treasury have moved very rapidly to short circuit the kind of doom spiral that could have happened. And it does look like the banking crisis in the US has been averted, but we're from the outside looking in and it may still be bubbling away. Credit Suisse in Europe is a very particular Credit Suisse problem. I was going to ask because Credit Suisse is not a regional bank. It's one of the whales, isn't it? Global whales. I don't think it was a surprise, was it? But you're going to say more. I think to any of the watchers out there, to anybody in our industry, Credit Suisse is the bank that has been permanently in the news for one stuff up after another stuff up after another stuff up. And in a point back when it was taken over by UBS or let's say pushed into the arms of UBS and we had that very febrile environment in banks, UBS was the one where there was going to be a loss of confidence, especially since most of the individual client base is high and ultra high net worth individuals. So their deposits are way above any government guarantee and it's the sort of money that can move instantly and they were seeing significant outflow. So yeah, 160 year history, but it was self-inflicted. I mean, if we use a simile of shooting themselves in the foot, they machine gun their legs off. <laughs> so it's not surprising. I have to say what impressed me was just how quickly the, the Swiss authorities acted around it. I mean, they completely changed laws over yeah. a weekend and, you know, it was quite incredible. Banking is so central to them as a country and their position in the world that they absolutely had to, yes. they were given any choice. But the problem is UBS is so big it might have damaged Switzerland's reputation, actually, but we'll wait and see. You rescue these things and then you create other problems down the road. I mean, in a way, it seems like the story of what's happening in the economy is like you plug one hole and that creates problems a bit further down the line. Politicians are always fixing the last crisis. And when something seems to work, they do it too much. So the old adage of too much of a good thing. There's also a well-known saying in financial markets, and it's called Lance's Law of Large Numbers, <laughs> which basically goes that when you get into very, very large numbers of anything, there are unintended consequences that nobody can anticipate, or at least not the politicians and the central bankers can anticipate. And it's inevitable. The pendulum swings from one point to another. So that comes back to where we started. One of our premises last year was as we saw rapidly rising interest rates, the market cycle would be 
probably marked by some denouement, a big sell-off, as a big whale, dead whale, floated to the surface. Which is typical of every cycle when interest rates go up, somewhere there's too much leverage and it's exposed. And so far, even with the banks that we've been talking about, we really haven't seen that. And on one hand, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we're getting away with this this time. On the other hand, I've got that thing in my ear saying, whenever it's different this time, panic. (laughs) I'm not relaxed, but we do seem to be, at the moment, on course. Oh, my God, this is such a hubristic comment. Oh, my God, I'm going to sell now, so... (laughs) Let's just stop there. We do have something on the horizon that historically has been a lot of noise and light and column inches and that's the negotiation of the US debt ceiling. Right. And the first time this happened, we being the market participants all got into tears. I think this might be the fourth time this dance has happened. Normally they go right to the brink and then they agree something. And really that is the core scenario. But we have to be aware that US politics is a lot more fractured. It's a lot more febrile. There's also, it seems, reading the analysis, that many of the players in the US now, i.e. Congress and so on, are quite simply less experienced. They are less experienced and less mature politicians. And they seem to be more willing to break things than not. So there is definitely a greater than zero chance that we will get fallout from the US debt ceiling. The actual chances of a technical proper default of US government bonds is infinitesimal. I think the Treasury and the Federal Reserve will do everything. But we could have federal government shutdown, which is bad news for the US economy. And, you know, the adage when the US economy sneezes, everybody catches a cold, still holds. So we are watching that. And... Even if that's passed, we could actually have some adverse market reaction because at the moment, the US Treasury and US Federal Reserve have been putting a lot of liquidity into the system to buffer the system. And after an agreement, they might start withdrawing that liquidity. One of our beliefs, certainly in the short to near term, what drives markets is the volume of money, you know, the liquidity that central banks, etc., are pushing into the system. So actually, we could have the resolution and the liquidity come out of the market. But that short-term noise, the real conundrum at the moment is that if you look at money market futures and how they discount the path of future interest rates, and this is in the US, in Europe and the UK, the market, as if it was an individual, is effectively implying that rates sometime the end of this year or in 24 will be falling. And yet we seem to have, as we said before, quite sticky inflation, even if it is rolling over. And I can talk for ages about how you know, the base effects of energy prices, etc., should make inflation look a lot lower, and they're not. The net result is inflation is stickier. And that implies that central banks will maintain interest rates at a higher level. So instead of a peak, it could be a plateau. And that is incompatible with what equity markets appear to be discounting. 
Because if we have a sharp fall in interest rates, it probably goes hand in hand with much sharper fall in economic activity. And this is a conundrum. We're talking about forecasting macroeconomic events, which in itself is difficult. And the probability of getting it right is quite low. So whilst we as a firm like looking at the trend and the environment, I couldn't tell you what the temperature will be with any sense of accuracy, three months out, six months out, nine months out. And then on top of that, you've got to get the market reaction right. So it's not looking great and rosy out there, but so far we seem to be muddling through. You know, the crystal ball is pretty pretty cloudy. You and the rest of the team, are you just looking out for signals constantly? How do you kind of stay on top of this stuff? Because I guess one of the things that you may need to do is to move very quickly if something does happen. Yeah, so we get a lot of inputs. There's a lot of inputs out there from FT articles right down to the subscription services that are good at economic and trend forecasting, but they're all scene setters. What we really like doing is when stuff is too cheap or too expensive, and we can get a handle on why it is too cheap or too expensive, ideally because market sentiment has gone to an extreme, that provides an opportunity for us. I mean, the last time that really happened was just post the trust disastrous budget, and we've done some podcasts, but that gave us an opportunity to buy bonds at a decent rate. And we wrote to clients and said, we're now being paid to hold bonds, right. which was very different from where it was two years ago. At the moment, the crystal ball is opaque and nor across almost every asset class are we being offered a compelling reason to buy it or sell it. And that's why activity has actually been quite low. Right. So our portfolios are positioned very conservatively. So in fixed income, in the bond section, we've got government bonds and investment grade corporate bonds. So lots of quality there. We don't have any high yield or emerging market debt. We're also quite exposed to short dated bonds. So we're at less risk of this repricing of future interest rates from a peak to a plateau. In the equity side, we're still underweight because there's just not any real great pockets of valuation that are compelling. Um, we're more underweight the US because the US remains relatively expensive to its history and we're slightly overweight Japan and the UK which are cheap relative to the history but they're slightly. We've got a bias to value which is basically fund managers who are looking for cheap companies and a bias towards quality which is fund managers who are looking for companies that have got strong financials. One thing I'd also add to that, everything that Lance is talking about, there are tactical decisions that we're making in the portfolio. It's trimming the sales. And we recognise that what we think might happen could be wrong. We're playing out different scenarios across different outcomes, and different events. You don't actually know, unless you have the benefit of hindsight, what's actually going to happen. So when you have this sort of period, you want to stick fairly close to the knitting, I think, and make adjustments. But these aren't major changes, and they shouldn't be major changes. Lance said earlier, we can't see what's going to happen necessarily in three months, six months, nine months. I often say this, I can't tell you what's going to happen next week, but I can pretty damn well certainly tell you what's going to happen over the next 10 years. 
which is a basket of the world's leading companies, are going to do better than any other asset class. So invest in equities in a properly diversified portfolio and you will do well over the long term. But you're running the volatility curve. You're going up and down with markets. So I think it's very easy for us all as human beings to get very caught up in what's going on right now. And yeah, we need to adjust and adapt our portfolios by trimming those sales to try and eke out a little bit of either overperformance or avoid underperformance. But in the long run, it is also sticking to the knitting of a strategy and a plan around the individual and what they're trying to achieve in their life. So all the investment structure that we do is focused on achieving a client's personal objectives. It's not just about trying to make money, which may sound bizarre, but it's got to have that purpose. Otherwise, if you're investing without understanding why you're investing and what the purpose is, it's pointless. So it's making sure that you understand what we're trying to do and stick with that. What we're doing inside the portfolios are those little tactical decisions. I think where some people perhaps can misunderstand is they think, oh, they should move everything to cash now and then everything back in. And that sort of highly dramatic move. And you might get it right once or twice, but you're going to get it wrong probably more than once or twice. And that's when real problems happen. Thank you for that, because I think it gives me a really good understanding of what's going on in your head. I mean, it's fascinating to hear what you think is going on as well. One thing that has really kind of hit public consciousness this year is generative AI. And I mention it because I think AI is creeping in across the board. And I can foresee that those tactical things you talk about, eventually machines will be making some of those decisions. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's something that we as a firm, I personally have started really sort of trying to get to grips with and understand. And the more I read about it and listen and talk to people about it, the more fascinating it becomes. And it's very different, I think, from previous technological changes for all sorts of reasons. And the speed is incredible. What these machines can do and how quickly they can learn and where it's taking us is quite fantastic, actually. I mean, something that somebody said to me the other day, said, you do realise that today is the worst that AI will ever be. And it's like a brilliant way of putting it. <laughs> That's yeah. a real thought, yeah. isn't it? But I think it's quite easy to paint a bit of a doomsday. You know, we're going to be taken over by machines and the human race will just be subservient to these sort of mechanical masters. And yeah, that makes good films. And let's just hope it's not true. But I actually have a far more positive attitude towards this. If we understand it and use it correctly, it will really make a significant change to society. Not all of that change will benefit everybody. There are absolute dangers. And I think there was something in the news this morning that... BT are replacing a whole host of jobs with AI. So I think there will be real casualties out of this. But I think it will give huge opportunities as well, certainly for us as a firm, to really improve and enhance what we do and how we do it. You know, just listening to that BT example, this will have an impact on the labour markets potentially. So feeds into all the economic side of things, which then feeds back into the investment side of things. Yes. Again, I like reading a lot about this stuff, the ramifications. These are still relatively early days. It's something that will obviously move very rapidly. I think one of the results is it's going to put a lot more emphasis or value on creativity. Yeah. And process-orientated roles are at risk. Big picture, it could make some significant shifts in the labour market. Between this and maybe the move to self 
driving autonomous type vehicles. And there's a tremendous amount of people employed in transport and maintenance of transport. And again, EVs need a lot less maintenance. We could have a structural shift in the level of employment and unemployment in the world, certainly in developed markets. And the current group think that you need growing population to have growth in an economy may actually be turned on its head. You could actually be disadvantaged for having too many people because there might not be jobs for them to go around. But this is all future speculation. So at this point, I'll go back to a great adage. It's Warren Buffett, because I certainly couldn't think it up. Warren's words, shall we call them? <laughs> call them Warren's words. When the automobile, because he did say automobile rather than car, came along, you could see it was bad for horses, but you didn't know which automobile company would be the winner. I think we're at that point. It's definitely got the potential for some very significant changes. I think that point around the disadvantage of people, it's a real thing. I mean, I hadn't really thought of that. I read something that the lorry drivers and the lorry industry in the US accounts for 10 million people. So, you know, if you've suddenly got autonomous lorries driving all over the place and they're all battery powered and that's 10 million people are out of jobs, potentially. Yeah, I think any firm that isn't embracing this stuff, he's got their head in the sand. It's very, very important to have an understanding of it and to embrace it. Back in the day, it was possible. Many firms in our sector didn't have a website for many years. Oh, we don't need that. We don't need to bother about any of that. And they could get away with it. And they did get away with it. There are other firms, me probably being one of them, that probably spent quite a lot of money in trying to do stuff when we probably didn't need to. Not at the time, not in the same way that we did it. We were quite advanced in many ways. And I don't think that that is an option with this. If you don't think about it and embrace it, you'll be way behind the curve and you won't be able to catch up. Fascinating. Fascinating. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Thank you so much. And congratulations again on the amazing award. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Baseline, a monthly podcast series dedicated to topics that matter in wealth management. Be sure to check out our podcast archive on SoundCloud. And until next time, have a marvellous week. You have been listening to Baseline from Cavendish Ware, an NMD Plus production.